Welcome, friends, to A History of Maryland. This is part one of episode two, Westward Ho for Avalon. Today we're going to explore that other great social dynamic in early 17th century England, the European discovery and colonization of the New World, and the profound ramifications it was having on everything. And we'll get to see another side of George Calvert. This isn't the studious and pliant courtier and bureaucrat. This is the rambling gambling George Calvert. He's a dreamer. He's a capitalist. Well, he's sort of like a proto-crony capitalist, but, you know, they haven't really even evolved into mercantilism yet, so, you know, baby steps. And he's a man who's going to bet his life and fortune on a roll of the dice across the Atlantic Ocean in the Newfoundland. And he's going to totally blow it. But these failures in Newfoundland will help lead to a successful foundation of the Maryland colony and will act as a dry run for both Maryland's founding charter, which is based heavily on the Avalon Charter, and as a first toe in the water for the Calvert's experiments with religious tolerance. And it's a good story. Avalon in southern Newfoundland, an island province in eastern Canada today, is Maryland's long-lost half-sister, and I want to bring her back into the family. There's also going to be wars, pirates and privateers, and we'll meet our first native tribes. We're also going to lose a few of our narrative's most beloved players of the world stage, and we'll meet a few more. So there are big changes afoot as we stumble along and stub our toes on the rocky road to Maryland. Now it's come to my attention that I may have left a few of you with the impression that I was done with all of this backstory and contextualizing and that I was finally going to get on with the action. But I think it would take a pretty loose and radical interpretation of what I actually said to come to that conclusion. Next time on A History of Maryland, the backstory is finally finished. It's time for action. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be a liar, and I'm not trying to constantly miss the mark of my projected storyline, but I'm still figuring out how this whole writing a podcast thing works. And when I started to scrabble together what I thought would be a few paragraphs summarizing the new dynamics at work in early 17th century England caused by the discovery of the Americas, I realized just how massive an undertaking that was. I realized how much context I'd need to just explain the context. At least if I was going to maintain the level of detail which I want for A History of Maryland. So this episode is going to be another trilogy. Shh. And like part one of the last episode, we're going to zoom out to the big picture and do a brief overview of the Age of Discovery and incentives that were driving it. We'll follow England's first forays into exploration and colonization. From its earliest attempts to discover a magical disappearing island, through to the Sea Dogs of the Elizabethan era. Through the adventures of two of these Sea Dogs, Sir Humphrey Gilbert and his half-brother Sir Walter Raleigh, we'll explore the settings of two islands that will serve as England's first two overseas colonial ventures. These are Ireland and Newfoundland, and both will play heavily in the continuing story of the Calverts, so there is a point to all this. Finally, I'll wrap up today's podcast with a brief discussion of Walter Raleigh's lost colony of Roanoke. Mostly so that I can use the podcast as a bully pulpit for my unsolicited and unqualified opinions about what happened to the colonists. Seriously, though, 
Today's podcast is going to be like a trip to the zoo. A little smelly, but we're going to have a lot of fun learning. So it's time to get into your best pair of pantaloons. Pull up anchor and hoist the mainsail. Because we're finally casting off for the new world. But before we sail too far and lose sight of land, I'm obligated by our legal team to broadcast the following disclaimer. Terms such as new world and discovered should not be viewed as objective or factual. They are convenient monikers, perpetrated and perpetuated by traditional Eurocentric histories and historiographies. Obviously, people have been living in what the Europeans call the Americas for millennia. By using these terms, a history of Maryland in no way means to infer that Europeans actually discovered something new, and is strictly limiting the usage in regards to the European perception of events. As I said in episode zero, we'll be circling back to focus on the natural history and the history of the natives who resided within the arbitrary political boundary lines, which we call Maryland today. This should be coming just before or just after the initial voyage of the Ark and Dove to Maryland. So hopefully in just a couple episodes. We're going to go back and we're going to flesh out the indigenous side of Maryland's history, and then we'll have the two lines of the narrative meet up in about 1634. That's the basic plan anyway. Now, whatever you want to call it, the European Age of Discovery would have massive ramifications worldwide on every aspect of human politics, economics, society, science, religion, the culinary arts, you name it. It's titanic. Even for people not directly involved, it will change their lives within a few centuries. What was driving this explosion of exploration, trade, and colonization on the tail end of the Middle Ages? Well, you can do an entire podcast series with like 200 episodes and probably miss many of the angles. And instead of a simple linear evolutionary progression, it's probably best to think of it as a bunch of ingredients simultaneously having chemical chain reactions with each other throughout the 15th century. In Western Europe, you have these royal dynasties beginning to congeal together into proto-states, what will eventually become Portugal, Spain, France, Britain, etc., they're slowly centralizing, developing more and more sophisticated bureaucracies and efficient means of control and taxation, mostly in order to pay for rapidly expanding military expenditures. War is endemic, almost a seasonal occupation, and thanks to technological and logistical innovations in warfare, it's all becoming much more complex and expensive, and they need to develop the ways to pay for it. This feedback loop is also being fueled by the growth of trade and by international finance. But Western Europe is being cut out of many of the markets, or at least it's being eaten alive by the middlemen. The Ottoman Turks have basically closed off the Silk Road to anything approachable to reasonable prices, and the Venetians and Genoese have most of the Mediterranean markets sewn up, as do the Hanseatic League and the Baltic. There are centers of trade in places like Flanders, which would be in modern-day Belgium and northeast France, but they're mostly constant war zones. So with demand going up, and costs so high, there's all the incentive in the world for enterprising people to try to get in on these markets. And the real goal, the dream, was to reach the Far East. You know, India, China, the Spice Islands. A handful of the spices from there were worth a fortune in Europe. And it was just falling out of the trees in the East Indies. So these were the stakes. Around the same time, advances in shipbuilding, navigation, and sales are allowing kingdoms with this technology to sail further and faster than they ever have before. Another ingredient in this whole stew that I personally think is very important, a uh, binding agent if you will, is that, well, 
Life sucked. I mean, say what you want about Columbus and his brutal reign as the governor of Hispaniola, but spare a thought for a minute at just how crappy things must have been for any of this to seem like a good idea in the first place. To get into one of these tiny, filthy, worm-ridden ships and just sail west into the uncharted expanse of raging ocean. And just hope that you are right about that whole Asia's just a few weeks over the horizon thing. And if you survived the voyage, you often faced catastrophically high mortality rates once you landed. Disease, starvation, food poisoning, infection, fatal injury, murder. Decades, even centuries after Europeans realized this was in Asia, this was somewhere new, even after the maps and ships and navigational technologies improved, this was a mind-bogglingly dangerous undertaking by modern transportation and living standards. Seriously, if you were weighing up the odds between surviving one of these voyages or colonization attempts versus being part of the first wave landing on Omaha Beach on June 6, 1944, you might want to choose D-Day. It's part of the reason that colonization efforts would often come to rely on both false advertising and physical coercion of people that had no desire to go. Speaking of coercion, decades before Columbus sailed the ocean blue, the Portuguese were exploring, exchanging, and expropriating their way along the west coast of Africa. Now ultimately they're trying to get around Africa to get to the Orient, but along their way they plugged themselves into existing African and Arab markets for things like gold, ivory, and of particular importance for our narrative, the slave trade. Now, Slaver and slave are probably the second and third oldest professions in the world. It's been going on forever. And at this point in history, it's still legally going on just about everywhere, in some form or another, including Europe. By the late medieval period, throughout Africa, African and Arab slave traders have already created some of the most extensive and sophisticated slaving networks in the world. On the east coast of Africa, the Arab slave trade is already pumping millions of African slaves east, into the Middle East, India, and even China. A trade that will roll on into the early 20th century and still exists in some forms today. What the Portuguese do in the 1400s is set themselves up as sort of a distribution outlet on the west coast of the continent. And as demand eventually increased for labor in the Americas over the next few centuries, this local slave trade would explode into what historians call the Atlantic slave trade or the triangle trade. This would have profound effects on Maryland later on in the 17th century, and we're going to get way more into that later. Just keep in mind that the apparatus is already being set up here some two centuries earlier. By the early 1500s, the Portuguese have already rounded the tip of South Africa, and they've reached India, the Spice Islands, and China. Meanwhile, Spain was busy toppling empires in Central and South America and setting up their own empire. They'd round the tip of South America and continue west into the Pacific. To the Philippines. Soon, silver mined in the Americas is being traded with the Chinese because it's worth more than gold there. The profits of these exchange rates are being used to help finance Habsburg armies stomping all around Netherlands and Germany. The economy is going global, and for most of the 16th century, the Spanish and Portuguese have it locked down. But it's not long before the French, the English, and the Dutch are scrambling to get into the game. England was actually out of the gates fairly early on the whole exploration thing. As early as 1480, there were expeditions from Bristol to try and discover the mystical phantom island of High Brazil, said to exist off the coast of West Ireland. It's supposed to be kind of an Irish Atlantis 
which according to legend, only appeared on one day every seven years, looming out of the mists. I'm going to assume no one ever discovered it, because if we had, there'd be a McDonald's franchise there by now. In 1496, Henry VII commissioned a Venetian navigator named Giovanni Cabado to, like Columbus, find a western passage to the Orient. Only Cabado, better known to English history as John Cabot, would take a more northerly route. And over several expeditions between 1496 and 1500, he discovered Newfoundland, only a half millennia after the Vikings discovered it. It's also believed that he eventually sailed down the east coast of North America, and into a pristine and brackish bay which we now call the Chesapeake. That assumption is mostly based on secondary evidence, like very early maps from other countries like Spain and Portugal, that show the area as being discovered by the English. But as far as we know, these were most likely the first European eyes to look on the coast of Maryland. The voyages of John Cabot, and the later voyages of his son Sebastian, are much of the reason that England believed they had claims over these regions once they do attempt colonization. During the reign of Henry VIII, England would go off the boil with this whole exploration thing for a few decades. But during his daughter Elizabeth's reign, interest was renewed. At this point, Spain is now bankrolling a global empire with whole convoys of galleons filled with the riches of the Americas. And England wanted a piece of that action. Peaceful trade wasn't really legal. Even when there was an overt war, the Spanish authorities would ruthlessly discourage foreign ships from traveling in what it considered its waters, or from trading with Spanish settlements or any Indian tribes that the Spanish considered under their sphere of influence. There was smuggling and black market trading done on the sly, but official hostilities between Spain and England kept it to a minimum. So England would have to muscle in if they wanted any part of the goodies of the Americas. But they were a tiny kingdom, poor and outgunned. The cheap, quick, and dirty answer to England's lack of money and the gap in naval supremacy was privateering. Privateering is essentially a private contractor navy and or legalized piracy, depending on how you want to look at it. Private ship owners and groups of investors would fit out an expedition under licenses issued by the crown, known as letters of mark. They'd raid enemy shipping and share out the proceeds with the crew and with the investors, as well as a healthy kickback to their crown and government. And Elizabethan England would have some of the most notorious privateers in history. They were known collectively as the Sea Dogs, guys like Francis Drake, John Hawkins, and Walter Raleigh. They were all men of Devon from the English West Country. They were all related by blood or marriage in some way or another. And they were all killers. The swashbuckling image which comes down to us from Errol Flynn movies is iconic and fun, but it tends to gloss over the massacres. Soon, the Sea Dogs would turn their bloody hands to raids on Spanish shipping and colonies, and to chiseling in on the burgeoning Atlantic slave trade wherever possible. There was a constructive byproduct to all this legally sanctioned theft, assault, kidnapping, murder, and that they also explored the coasts and rivers of the New World in Africa. And in the case of Francis Drake, they even circumnavigated the globe. They'd land book deals, becoming celebrities in their time. And they'd feed into a kind of new world mania with the tales of adventures and lost cities of gold. The Sea Dogs would also be involved in the earliest attempts at English colonization overseas. 
and that colonization would begin first not in the Americas, but in Ireland. Now there's no way I could remotely do Irish history any justice in this tiny bit of space. Suffice to say that at this point, there is an insanely complex web of political struggles between various clans, families, and factions of the Gaelic Irish, the old English Irish of Norman descent, and of the more recent English overlords based in Dublin and the British settlers they brought along with them. And they're all fighting against each other and against themselves, depending on who's in control and what part of the island you're on. By the time of the Tudor dynasty, the English crown has laid claim to the whole island. From their perspective, Ireland was a loaded gun at the back of England's head. It had become a national security issue that the Crown felt it needed to be proactive in dealing with. Ireland was a convenient landing zone for hostile foreign armies. It was chock full of seditious papists, and they had all this land just sitting there that they weren't really doing anything with anyway, you know what I mean? <coughs> As a way to bring the constantly fractious and rebellious territory to heel, the English Crown set about creating a new landed aristocracy there one that was specifically loyal to the crown. And in many areas, they began to replace the original Gaelic-Irish population outright with English, Welsh, and Scottish colonists. These were known as the Irish plantations. And don't really think about southern plantations. The term at this point in history is basically synonymous with colony. When Sir George Calvert was raised into the Irish peerage in 1625, it was part of this whole process. Sadly, I haven't been able to find out too many specifics about his tenure there, but County Longford was one of the areas where Gaelic populations were being replaced, and seeing as many of the settlers and laborers he would later bring to Newfoundland were Welsh and English Protestants, I imagine they might be the same sort of settlers who had traveled first to Ireland. I wish I knew more about Calvert as an Irish landlord, but the Maryland histories barely scratch the subject and Irish histories probably consider his years there relatively inconsequential. I mean, he was an absentee landlord for much of the time. As part of King James's administration, Calvert was certainly part of the governing apparatus involved in creating and maintaining the Irish plantations, including the Ulster plantations. And making people third-class citizens in their own country and throwing them off their land could be nasty business, especially once the inevitable revolt and retaliatory violence became entrenched and cyclical. But as far as I know, Calvert himself wasn't personally ankle-deep in gore over there. The same can't be said for Sir Humphrey Gilbert and his half-brother, our old friend, Sir Walter Raleigh. Two sea dogs, who a generation before Calvert, were definitely getting their hands dirty in Ireland while crushing the Desmond rebellions. Rebellions caused in part by Elizabethan-era attempts at colonizing Ireland. Gilbert and Raleigh would also be involved in England's earliest colonization attempts in the Americas. Since Newfoundland will be the subject of our next couple podcasts, I wanted to go into a bit of detail about the setting via the expedition of Sir Humphrey Gilbert, who had officially claimed the territory for England in 1583. This would set the table for Calvert's Avalon colony a few decades later. But at the time of Gilbert's 1583 expedition, keep in mind Calvert's only three years old. While this story, like most of my narrative so far, has little to do with Maryland specifically, I hope it kind of flavors your perception of just how fractious, clumsy, dangerous, and lousy these sort of voyages were. There's a detailed account of the 83 expedition by Edward Hayes, the captain of the Golden Hind, which I lean on for that specific part of Gilbert's tale. 
And though Hayes is by no means as snarky and cynical as I am about it, it still paints a slightly more complex picture than your basic a chivalric knight claims lands in the New World for England narrative that you might get in a thumbnail history. Plus, I think it's a neat story that I haven't really heard anywhere else, so I'm yoinking it. Along with being a soldier and a member of both the Irish and English parliaments, Sir Humphrey Gilbert would be an early proponent of English colonial expansions at the expense of Spain. In 1578, he'd receive a patent from Queen Elizabeth allowing him, in the words of Hayes, to inhabit and possess at his choice all remote and heathen lands not in actual possession of a Christian prince. That same year, Gilbert would bring together an expedition of seven ships to sail to the New World, presumably to find some place, say it was theirs, and look around for things that were worth money. But the fleet got scattered to the winds, almost right off the bat, and a bunch of the ships just sailed off on their own and turned pirate. Which should give you the sense of the caliber of men that they could get to go on these expeditions, and their basic level of intent. So Gilbert had to scrub that mission. But the next year he was back at sea in the service of Her Majesty. It was the time of the Second Desmond Rebellion, and there was word of Spanish ships heading for Ireland, carrying Catholic mercenaries from the Papal States to help aid the rebels against the English. Gilbert's job was to intercept the Spanish ships before they could land. But Gilbert was blown off course and ended up in the Bay of Biscay off the coast of France. The Spanish ships landed unopposed, and the Catholic mercenaries were able to disembark. But all's well that ends well, with the mercenaries being cut off and surrendering at the Siege of Smerwick after being promised their lives. And once they surrendered, 600 of them were massacred on the orders of Lord Grey de Wilton. And these beheadings were overseen by none other than Sir Walter Raleigh. Captain Raleigh at the time, but it's a small world, isn't it? Despite issues with getting financial backing, Gilbert would manage to cobble together another expedition of five ships to set sail in 1583. It was only a year or so before his colonization patent from the Queen was due to expire, so the pressure was on. Their aim was to reach the east coast of North America, maybe the Hudson River, maybe the Chesapeake. But they planned first to hit the island of Newfoundland, claim it officially for Sir Humphrey Gilbert, I mean England, and resupply there before heading on to wherever else in the Americas they were destined to land. By resupply, they explicitly meant take the stuff from the fishermen. This had actually been an old scheme of Gilbert's he had tried to sell to the Queen years before. To seize Newfoundland and the fishing fleets of the Spanish in one single swoop. While there were plenty of Spanish fishermen that frequented Newfoundland, they were mostly Basques, not Castilian Spanish. Portuguese, French, and English fishermen abounded as well. Since John Cabot's voyages the century before, the waters and shores of the island had become sort of an international crossroads, independent of official government oversight, despite whatever vague claims were made on the land. The English traced their claims to Cabot in 1498. The French expeditions were in 1534. And the Spanish pretty much had claimed half the hemisphere from the outset. So it was kind of the Wild West of the time, with the fishermen generally seeming to get along and sort out disputes amongst themselves, and they would remain a quasi-independent faction in the region for decades. The point is, in 1583, the fishermen were there already, and they had been there like 80 years before any official royally approved attempts at settlement, and they had already explored the area comprehensively. They just didn't have much of an incentive to share that information and invite more competition. 
the waters were teeming with cod. And year after year, fishermen would turn either to brine the fish, known as wet cure, or salt the fish on the shore, known as dry cure, and fill the holds of their ships for resale back in Europe. For generations, these fishermen would come over from Europe in the warmer months, and then bail before the winter hit. Some enterprising merchants would follow them and sell the fishermen supplies. Thus, seasonal camps would crop up around the island, the largest of which was known as St. John's. It's still there today. It's the capital of the province. But it wouldn't be a year-round settlement for a few more decades. There were natives on the island as well. Sometimes the Inuit would row down from Labrador, or the Mi'kmaq would row up from Nova Scotia. But the main tribe of the island were the Bayatuk. They were hunter-gatherers living in small groups of about 30 to 50 that would follow the herds of caribou around the island. They were known to Europeans as the Red Indians because they painted themselves, their houses, their canoes, and just about everything in a red ochre. It was a visual marker of tribal identity that they used not only to separate themselves from the Inuit and the Mi'kmaq, but to separate themselves from social outcasts of their own tribe. Transgress the unwritten law, and you couldn't wear red anymore. I thought that was kind of interesting. But honestly, the Bayatuk are not really going to factor into our narrative about Avalon. The highest estimates of their total populations run about one or 2,000 on the whole island, and Newfoundland is about 42,000 square miles. But their population was more likely in the hundreds. They avoided contact with the Europeans as much as possible, and probably with good reason. When you have independent vessels sailing over from half a dozen kingdoms, that doesn't lead to any cohesive or consistent policies toward the treatment of the natives. And since the Europeans were mostly there to compete for natural resources, not to trade, many of the interactions were probably not too friendly. European sailors also had a habit of snatching native individuals from their canoes and taking them back to Europe as curiosities, usually never to be seen again. So the Bayatuk tended to keep their distance. I just wanted you to know they were out there, somewhere in the wilderness, and probably in the back of the minds of the sailors and the settlers throughout this narrative. Gilbert's expedition left England in June 1583. Almost immediately, one of the ships had to head back due to lack of food or never managed to leave due to weather, depending on what you read. Incidentally, this was half-brother Raleigh and his ship, the Bark Raleigh. And I can't help but wonder if perhaps Raleigh had noticed the same pattern of bad luck and or basic incompetence that seemed to follow Gilbert's adventures. And maybe he just, you know, ducked out early. It would be a prophetic move if he did. Whether by poor preparation or spoilage, lack of food did seem to be a problem from the outset. Before they'd even made it to Newfoundland, one of the four remaining ships had stopped a fishing vessel heading the other way and requisitioned supplies. In other words, they seized the ship, piled on board, grabbed anything they wanted, and then let it straggle home with whatever tiny amount of food and supplies they were able to hide. And Hayes would suggest it probably wasn't enough for them to survive the trip back with. Upon reaching the fishing camp at St. John's, Gilbert's expedition found itself blockaded from the harbor. Perhaps because of the piratical reputations which preceded some of the fleet's captains and crews. There were reportedly 36 fishing vessels from multiple nations anchored at St. John's at the time. But it seems like it was a group of English merchants who were in control of the harbor. And Gilbert was able to row a small boat in to parley with their leader and produce the patent granted by their queen to claim the territory for England. 
the English of St. John's agreed to help and go along with the annexation. And their services would almost instantly be needed, as one of Gilbert's captains ran his ship against a rock upon entering the harbor. After the ship and crew were rescued, Gilbert awarded their saviors, with a list of supplies he'd be requisitioning from them for the second leg of their journey. Then he went ashore and gathered together all the fishermen he could, English and otherwise. There Gilbert performed a ceremony, officially claiming St. John's and 200 leagues in every direction for himself, his heirs, forever, in perpetuity. In the name of the Queen and the greater good of England, of course. Then he went over the new rules. He let the assembled company know that the Church of England would be the only religion going anymore that they had to pay rents to salt their fish on his shore, that if anyone talked bad about the queen, he'd have their ears cut off and he'd seize all their stuff, and that he would from now on be taxing every ship in the harbor and along the coast that he could get his hands on. With that little bit of official government admin sorted out, they prepped their remaining four ships for the continuation of their voyage. Desertion and sickness had been rampant among his crew since they'd arrived at Newfoundland and he decided to send one of the ships with the worst of the sick and lame back home to England. And, uh, thems would be the lucky ones. Eventually, Gilbert sailed off with his three remaining ships for the coast of America. But, in relatively short order, one of his ships wrecked on a shoal in the fog, with all hands lost. About a hundred souls in all. And in case you were wondering, yes, it was their biggest ship. And yes, it was the one with most of the expedition's food and supplies on it. Amazingly, all of this still hadn't completely dissuaded Gilbert from the voyage. He had to have something to show for all of his misery, right? Hopefully something shiny, that he could parlay into future investment for the next voyage. It was only after crewmen began drawing lots and casting off the losers in a life raft with no food and water, just so the rest of them would have a better shot at surviving, that Gilbert mercifully saw the writing on the wall, and he gave the order to limp back to England. Weeks later, the remaining two ships were still some ways west of home when they hit bad weather. According to Hayes, Gilbert's ship, called the Squirrel, was too heavily laden with cannon and riding too low and close on the waterline. During one bad patch, Gilbert's ship almost went under, but managed to weather it and stay above the rollicking waves. After the squall, when the Golden Hind, Hayes' ship, got within hailing distance to check on their mates, they found a cheerful Gilbert sitting in the back of the squirrel with a book in his hand. And he famously exclaimed, We are as near to heaven by sea as by land. This account has kind of spun off into legendary versions over the years, where Gilbert is howling these words as the ship goes down, or he's seen calmly reading this book as the squirrel sinks beneath the waves. But Hayes' original count isn't so romantic. It's about noon. The wind and the waves have calmed enough for the Golden Hind to come alongside the squirrel to check on her. And Gilbert calls out to his fellow captain, We are as near to heaven by sea as by land. Some speculate that the book was Thomas More's Utopia because there's a similar line in it. My personal speculation is that the book was a Bible. And considering the context of Hayes' account, the actual modern translation of Gilbert's words was something akin to... Holy crap! That was nuts! I'm pretty sure we almost died! 
It would be 12 hours later, in the darkness of midnight, that crewmen aboard the Golden Hind noticed the lantern lights of Gilbert's ship ahead of them had disappeared. They never saw her again, and the Golden Hind would straggle its way home alone. Now, I guess I could have just said, like the thumbnail histories do, an English knight named Sir Humphrey Gilbert claimed England's first colony in the Americas, but sank on the way home. And maybe some of you wished I had. But when you zoom in, there's always so much more to the story, and that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast. And honestly, I had just gotten so far in writing that, I just had to keep it. Anyway, no summary of the Elizabethan colonial attempts could be complete without touching on the lost colony of Roanoke. Since I've completely ridden today's podcast off the rails already, I'll make this as brief as possible. In 1585, a few years after Gilbert's last expedition, his brother Sir Walter Raleigh would take up the charter to build a military base on the east coast of America in order to use it as a base for a privateering against the Spanish, which was paying off big time at this point. This expedition managed to A, build a fort on Roanoke Island in today's North Carolina, and B, piss off most of the local natives. But the venture was ultimately abandoned. Sir Francis Drake happened to be sailing by on one of his crazy adventures, and most of the men at the fort hitched a ride with him on the way back to England. A ship that had been sent to resupply the fort showed up too late and found it empty. But they left 15 men behind to try to hold the area for English claims. And how would you like to be one of those guys? Just you and 14 dudes hiding behind a circular fence for a year in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by angry Indians. In 1587, Raleigh would try again. Not personally. He never went over to Roanoke himself. He just held the charter. This time, he sent his friend John White and over 100 settlers men, women, and children. The idea was to put down real roots by settling families. But it seems like the colonists realized they were in trouble fairly soon after arriving. First, they found the fort empty again, except for one skeleton. So much for those 15 guys. And they found out that the local natives were somehow still angry about getting their villages burned down by the previous expeditions a few years earlier. Governor White would head back to England in late 1587 to try to find some more supplies and more reinforcements for the colony, just in time for the Spanish Armada. Thanks to the conflict with Spain, it would be three years before he'd be able to return to the colony. When he did, he found it empty. 115 or so people, including White's daughter and granddaughter, had completely vanished. Houses and fortifications had been dismantled. And according to White's account, there were no signs of violence. The only clue being the words Croatoan carved into a tree. What is today known as Hatteras Island was called Croatoan Island back then. And speculation at the time was that the colonists had moved there for food or for safety, but they've never been found. So what happened to the lost colony of Roanoke? I try to be cautious in these sort of outright speculations, but I have strong gut feelings about this one. If you ask me what happened to the lost colony, and I'll just pretend you did, I think the smart money is on nothing remotely pleasant. I know there are oodles of stories handed down through the centuries about some of the colonists surviving and blending into the native population. If they did, I don't think it was under the most auspicious circumstances. 
Maybe a few of the kids were taken in by the tribes after they saw their parents starved or murdered. To me, it's just one of those legends that are going to come about when something like this happens. They're still out there, living with the natives. Now, to be fair, there are examples of this sort of thing in history, but it's usually a few individuals snatched in a raid. Most of the sources for these stories have plausible ulterior motives. And I'm not even sure how much of John White's observations and assumptions about the state of Roanoke in 1590 we can accept 100%. I think three years is plenty of time for bodies and certain signs of violence to disappear, especially if someone wanted them to. Even more especially if the colonists left the safety of the walls and split up to look for food. And I think it would be something like 12 years later before the first follow-up investigation would happen. I think the axe came down, maybe literally, on the colonists just a few months at most after that last ship sailed over the horizon. But what do I know? I am but a humble fishmonger. It's all pure speculation. There's as much hard evidence that at least some of the colonists survived. They may have also discovered the magical rainbow bridge to Candyland and settled somewhere in the Valley of Gumdrops next to a strawberry milkshake river. But what do you think happened to the colony? You can let me know at a History of Maryland's Facebook page or uh, post a comment on YouTube. Thank you for indulging me on this little sojourn off the official path of our narrative. Hopefully this gives you all a sense of the Elizabethan era attempts at colonialism. They're mostly a foreign policy reaction against Spanish world domination, and they mostly range in success from limp failure to complete disaster. It's during the reign of King James I, basically the time frame of our last three podcasts, that the embryonic overseas empire of Britain would really begin to take hold. So we sort of need to go back and do a parallel episode encapsulating those years from the perspective of all this exploration and colonization. Because in effect, that's where Maryland comes from. And George Calvert would take an early and consistent interest in England's overseas ventures, as early as 1609, even earlier if you count Ireland. So we're going to get into all that, and then catch back up with the narrative, with George Calvert in early 1625, free from the restraints of political office, his head full of crazy dreams about starting a colony, and eager to get down to the job of being Lord Baltimore. And I hope you will join me in a few weeks for all that and more for part two of episode two, Westward Ho for Avalon. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube. I want to thank you again for listening. This has been a History of Maryland. I have been Jared Books. Rock on. <laughs>